Hi, I'm Perry, and you're listening to The Beauty Brains. Welcome to The Beauty Brains, a show where real cosmetic chemists answer your beauty questions and give you a unique insider's look at the beauty product industry. This is episode 188. I'm your host, Perry Romanowski, and with me today is a woman who prefers earthquakes and wildfires to freezing temperatures and blizzards, Valerie George. Hello, Valerie. Hi, Perry. On today's episode, we've got a good show for you today. In this episode, we're going to cover a bunch of your beauty questions, or at least a few of them. How to get good color-matched foundation from the internet. Wow, you can find anything on the internet nowadays. Uh, Whether you need to protect yourself from blue light, and whether your skin adapts to your moisturizer. Plus, we've got an installment of the Recall Roundup, everybody's new favorite bit. But before we get to that, uh, let's say hello to Valerie. How's it going, Valerie? It's good, Perry. We're ready for another episode. We are. It just seems like we just put one out. And uh, how about that turnaround time on uh, getting that edited, huh? Uh, It's pretty impressive. I think on that episode, we let the listeners know just how much time we put into the show. And it's not just researching all of the answers to make sure we're providing uh, current and factual information, but the post-editing of the show takes a lot of work and... I think you would do it. Not that I, I doubted you, but I just thought, man, that's a lot of editing. And sure enough, you did it. Well, you know, I, uh, I, 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 you can't really call me a procrastinator, although sometimes it does seem that way. Well, uh, I think you've referred to yourself as a procrastinator in the past, right? I like to think of myself more as a prioritizer. <laughs> just I that. like that. That's that's the positive way to look at it. Well, why don't we get started with our beauty news? All right, Valerie, why don't you take the first one? Well, this week I was reading Cosmetics Business, which is a industry publication from Europe, and they posted a press release about a group of researchers from Georgetown University Medical Center. And this research group discovered that there's a link between mental health and genetics with tanning bed addiction. Oh, wow. What this research group did is collect saliva samples from nearly 300 women aged 18 to 30 in a genetic study to assess five different genes related to pathways that reward addictive behavior. It's well established that individuals can have variations to the gene responsible for dopamine, which is the chemical linked to the brain's reward and pleasure system. In addition to studying the participants' genetic makeup, the scientists evaluated mental health, body image, and tanning habits to determine if there is a link between variations in this gene, if the participants have those variations in tanning bed addiction. So it was a look at both genetics and emotional behaviors. So are they trying to correlate something in the genes with an emotionally addictive behavior then? Exactly. So I guess there's five genes that are known to be related to the dopamine receptors in the brain. And if you have a variation in the genes, I guess you would be considered to have addictive behavior or that they're trying to prove. Exactly. Exactly. I think uh, in a previous show, like way back, we talked about people who did get addicted to tanning. It, It can happen. And the study found that women with symptoms of depression and modifications to those reward-related genes were at the most risk for being addicted to tanning. In fact, sometimes 
13 times more likely. And what if the women didn't have signs of depression, but still carried the variant genes? They were twice as likely to develop tanning addictions. Wow. So getting addicted to tanning is in your genes? It could be. Um, Now, this area is of high interest for me personally, because I've always done my best to protect my skin from the sun. I've always tried to wear sunscreen. A lot of people think I'm younger than my age. And I'd like to attribute that to taking care of my my skin in the sun. And I used to walk around saying tan skin is damaged skin. But in the medical industry, this area is of interest because there's already strong evidence that the use of indoor UV tanning causes or increases the risk of skin cancer. So it's really important to understand what gets people to tan, what gets people to do this behavior that we know is bad. It's kind of like smoking, right? Right. And the psychosis behind intentional indoor UV tanning isn't a new area of research. Scientists have tried to understand what gets people in bed, the tanning bed, for a long time. <laughs> right. In fact, um, I came across many publications by Dr. Joel Hillhouse, a professor and researcher in clinical psychology at East Tennessee State University. Him and his research groups have been trying to model behavior of indoor tanning since at least 1995. And the papers that he has are published in well-established peer-reviewed journals where he's either led the research or taken part in the research. And he's really just trying to figure out why, why are people doing this? And in fact, in 2005, he postulated in one publication that there is something beyond peer pressure and cosmetic ideals that gets people to tan. And through his research, he was able to suggest a link between seasonal and affective disorder and tanning. So sometimes people get maybe depressed in the wintertime, there's not as much sun and they want to go tanning. He was one of the first people to suggest that link. And so while we all know tanning is bad for us, and there's many reasons from a psychological perspective that despite the risk, people intentionally tan and damage their skin, I thought this study was really interesting because I think that it can actually segue researchers further into this mind-body exploration on the why. You know, I recently saw that the Skin Cancer Foundation had put out a notice that research showed that fewer U.S. high school students are tanning. So this whole notion of tan skin not being healthy skin might be catching on. It'd be interesting to see if there's a continued age demographic of people who are, are still using tanning beds. I do know that A lot of people nowadays do the indoor spray tanning, which uh, I think is fabulous. And that technology, while still simplistic, using dihydroxyacetone, has come a long way in terms of how it applies to the skin. And they actually look pretty good. Yeah, I'd love to see if the younger people are stopping. I do know that uh, when one of my good friends got married, she actually had requested that I go tanning because... She was concerned about how my pale skin would photograph in the bridal party photo. Oh, of course. And I, I'm like super ashamed to admit this. I did it because oh, I make her happy. Yeah. And so to me, it's just so interesting of, know, of what gets people to go. You know, they have Photoshop for that, don't they? <laughs> well, not really back then. This was ah. like 15 years ago. This was in 2004 or so. So, I mean, Photoshop existed then. <laughs> sure, I sure. Think. And, yeah, but... I'm a little ashamed to admit it. I gave into the peer pressure. It's the only time I've ever done it. And um, looking back, you know, why couldn't being pale be cooler? I don't know. Well, thankfully, Valerie, you tried it the one time, but you didn't get addicted. I must not have the gene variant. Speaking of addicted, that bleds us into our next story. One of your favorite topics, 
CBD. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I I was just looking through all of the all of the latest CBD launches, and this one caught my eye. This new line from uh, Vegamore, they've launched serums and ingestibles. And what caught my eye was that they said this is a new CBD line for hair growth. Oh. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, they go through the uh, typical canards of having a CBD line and talking about it uh, affecting the cannabinoid system or the endocannabinoid system and how in combination with the, with eating their CBD and biotin vegan hair gummies and then putting on this serum, it's going to make your hair grow back and i just thought this was way over the top and i don't see how they're going to be able to market this product this is bad on two levels firstly in the united states only certain things can be claimed to allow hair to grow back and unfortunately cbd isn't one of them the big corporations are not hiding cbd the fda is not hiding cbd from hair growth there are just no studies that actually can substantiate that that is a benefit of CBD. But that doesn't stop companies from just coming out with products. If you throw CBD in there, then you can make whatever claim you want, apparently. Yeah. The second bad thing is you can't really say CBD does anything, period. It's still not really regulated for cosmetic products until the 2018 Farm Bill is enacted. So... Yeah, I don't know. I, I think we're gonna have to start a, a new segment. It's like uh, getting high with the CBD or something like that. Maybe we could talk about the newest CBD launches because <laughs> there's so many of them. <laughs> we're hearing all about it, and what's interesting about CBD is typically these uh, mega trends start in really large, well-established brands, maybe in a prestige sector. And it trickles down and eventually like everyone just kind of does it. And CBD is something that is exploding all over the place. You can find it or at least advertisements referencing it at CVS, Walmart, a high-end salon, a high-end store. Uh, it's just a really interesting. And I'm, I'm excited to see the market space evolve because brands will really have to stretch to find a point of difference with the product. So it's, it's sort of a unique ingredient trend in that way. But instead of a big company doing it and it's trickling down, this one seems to be trickling up. It, it seemed to start with really small companies and then now everybody's just jumping on it. And everybody's getting on it before there's any regulation on it pretty much at all. Yeah. And as regulations come into place, it's going to be really interesting to see what happens with the marketplace. So Maybe in future episodes, we could consider a new segment. But just to cap that one off, no, CBD has not been proven to regrow hair and claiming that it does or selling products that it will do that uh, at the moment is illegal. All right, Valerie, we got our next segment. One, one of your favorites too. Recall Roundup, where we go to the FDA website and we look at all the brands who have had recalls within the last few weeks. All right, we'll start with the first one I saw. Young Living Essential Oils has recalled their Orange Blossom Moisturizer. It turns out several lots of this product were contaminated with Candida yeast and one of the yeast-like organisms called Cephalacus fragrans. Oh, it must smell bad, right? 
<laughs> now, this isn't terribly surprising because uh, I went and looked at their preservative system, and I say it's a little weak. You know, whenever I see licorice root extract in the ingredient list, I get a little nervous. Uh, the brand also claims to be paraben-free, and uh, whenever brands claim that and they're using licorice root extract, that makes me a bit nervous. Yeah, the reason we are doing this segment, just to remind you guys, is that, A, I don't think a lot of people regularly visit the FDA website, but Perry and I do, and it's important that if you have purchased these products and are using them, specifically the lot numbers impacted by the recall, it's really important you you don't use them. Microorganisms in a product is, is not a good thing. And while some organisms like yeast seem rather harmless, there can be really bad organisms in products as well. And if there's an organism in a product, that means the product wasn't formulated or produced in a high quality way. So it's not really a product you're going to want to use anyway. Like our next product on the recall list, Labella Extreme Sports Styling Gel. This is recalled due to bacterial contamination oh, from Bercolderia sapatia. Yeah. Well, you know, Valerie, I saw this this product uh, was for sale at Target and they had it at Walmart. I mean, this is a pretty mainstream product. I was very surprised this happened. Yeah, it can. Bercolderia sapatia is known by the FDA as a superbug. It's a serious organism. It can affect people with compromised immune systems. So once it enters your body, if you have broken skin or you've inhaled this organism, you can get very, very sick from it. And this is another example where, yeah, are a lot of brands using tons of not great preservatives and they're getting ordinary organisms in their products like the Young Living product, yes. But you can also use good preservative systems and have an issue. And that's what you just mentioned a second ago, Perry, is where there's unsanitary manufacturing practices where somehow this bacteria has entered the manufacturing system and it's formed a biofilm in the manufacturing equipment. And once it's in there, it's really hard to get rid of. So you can use a good preservative system that was one of the surprising things about this product because I looked at their preservative system and it's pretty good. They're using pretty good standard uh, preservatives that should work. So now you have to wonder about their manufacturing facilities. Yeah, it's it's certainly twofold. And I think this is an organism we're going to see a lot more of. I think it's becoming unaffected by standard preservative systems. And, you know, I don't like to promote parabens and all that kind of stuff. But it makes me wonder if we didn't get into this whole bad preservative formulating in the first place with the ban of parabens, would this have happened? It's Yeah, it's it, it, it seems like uh, we're getting more and more recalls due to microbial contamination. And that isn't surprising to me with the movement away from preservatives that have been proven over decades to new ones that haven't been proven for decades to be effective. And then you get cosmetic manufacturing isn't a sterile environment. It's not pharmaceuticals. It just can't be a dirty environment. And so part of me is wondering is, are these organisms, you know, sort of laughing at these substandard preservative systems and evolving over time? I don't know. It's The advice that I give to people is if someone is claiming paraben-free, I say run away. <laughs> It scares me. I mean, you can, don't get me wrong, you can create 
a good preservative system in a formula and you can manufacture it without using parabens and it still is safe. It's just that it's a lot harder to do. It is definitely a lot harder. That's right. Time for your beauty questions. This first question comes to us from Nicole. Nicole says, I have a question pertaining to sunscreen. It seems the new big hotness or sunscreen marketing is blue light protection. Yet looking at some of the sunscreens marketing this protection, example, Super Goop's Unseen Sunscreen and Kula's Sun Silk Drops, the filters and ingredients are not that much different from other sunscreens. Is this just marketing hype? What good ingredients should I look for in blue light protection? Thanks for that question, Nicole. Uh, we've had this one on our docket for a while. I don't know why I've been avoiding it. I just haven't got to it. But it's an interesting, interesting topic. Blue light. Well, back in episode 184, that was a solo episode, Valerie. I don't think you were here for that one. I was traveling. That's right. You were. <laughs> anyway, that, and that, that show, you know, that's not even a great show because it's just me blabbling. <laughs> but anyway, back on that show... Uh, we talked about sunscreen and how they're designed to block UV rays. Now, UV stands for ultraviolet, and the two types uh, that the sunscreens are meant to block are UVA and UVB. We've, we've actually talked about that on other episodes, too. UVA and UVB are a form of light waves on the electromagnetic spectrum, ranging from about 280 to 400 nanometers in length. And, of course, they've been shown to damage skin and even cause skin cancer. Now, UVA and UVB happen to be outside the range at which our human eyes can see. There are some insects and some uh, nocturnal animals that can see some of this light, but we people without special equipment, we can't see UVA or UVB. Visible light, on the other hand, has a wavelength range from about 350 to 750 nanometers. And these are the things that we can see. So what does this well, all Well, that's how we see light and color, right? Exactly. So what does this all have to do with the blue light? Well, you remember that uh, mnemonic device for the colors of the rainbow? Yep. Roy G. Biv. Exactly. Roy G. Biv. Well, the ROI, the red, orange, and yellow visible light, is a longer wavelength. And the blue, the blue indigo violet, that's a shorter wavelength. Now, UV light is even shorter still. But the blue range is that, that BIV part, right? And the so-called blue light is the visible light with a wavelength which just a little bit longer than UV light. Now, I've seen other people call this... HEV, or High Energy Visible Light, and these wavelengths run from about 380 nanometers to about 500 nanometers. Now, most of the blue light that you're exposed to comes from the sun, like the vast majority is coming from the sun. But some of it comes from your devices, like your phone, your TVs, fluorescent light bulbs, and, and that sort of thing, any sort of bluish-hued light, right? Well, some researchers believe that blue light can be bad for your skin. And particularly, the range is closer to that of UV rays, say, from the 380 to the 400 nanometer range. A little higher than that, the evidence is just a lot less, so it doesn't seem to be as problematic. So the good news is that there's only this small range of where the light might be a problem. Some of the things that is claimed to happen with this blue light exposure, it includes like a darker skin color change, 
and the causing of some inflammation. Now, it's important to note that there really is no proven link between visible light and skin cancer, so blue light is not giving you cancer. The main concern is that the blue light, it can penetrate deep into the skin. Maybe it's going to create some uh, free radicals, which leads to inflammation, and that can wreak havoc on your collagen, your elastin, the skin structure, and help to age your skin. Now, in researching this, it's, it seemed like most of the people quoted were people who were selling products to prevent the blue light effect. So I'm, I remained a little skeptical about how significant this effect is. There's certainly some research that demonstrates that there might be a problem. Now, before you ditch your phone and start putting a shield of your electronics, the research in this area is it's pretty new. And the studies that have shown some effect, they've been done primarily on mice models using really high doses of the blue light. I saw that there were uh, a few human studies and the couple studies I saw done on human volunteers, they had sample sizes of like nine subjects. So I'm always skeptical of, you know, really small research studies like that. It's interesting and it shows a way that research should go, but to uh, take nine subjects and then say, this leads to some general description of the world and then let's start making products for this. That seems a little bit over the top to me. The biggest concern uh, in these studies was hyperpigmentation, uh, but things like skin aging and wrinkling, uh, that just wasn't proven out in any of the studies that I saw. In my opinion, I think that maybe there is something with blue light, okay? It's a little too new for sure. me and a little loosey-goosey to prove anything. To me, people need to be more worried about UV. That's the bigger problem. Yeah, ab absolutely. I mean, let's get the UV thing worked out first. And then, you know, blue light is coming later. But if you are worried, uh, certainly if you're worried about UV, and as you should be, using a sunscreen is is the most effective way to stop that or staying in the house, I guess. <laughs> you can avoid yeah. that way, right? I will say the one of the specific sunscreens that Nicole mentioned was Kula sunscreen silk drops that mm -hmm. is one of my new favorite sunscreens right now it's a beautiful box and yes they advertise blue light protection on there which seems pretty cool i, I don't buy it for that i actually really like the spf format it's uh like a liquid um sunscreen and it's a it's not a mineral based sunscreen mm -hmm. um you know chemical sunscreen some of our users call it uh, but i actually really enjoy it. It's one of my favorite sunscreens and I've been using it for about nine months. Well, I'm curious how they uh, support their protection from blue light damage though. They, they must be including some sort of antioxidants because that's one of the strategies uh, that has been suggested. If blue light is causing free radicals in your skin, then adding antioxidants uh, onto your skin can help to alleviate a problem like that. Mm-hmm. But another the one thing to note about uh, sunscreens and blue light is that most sunscreens aren't going to protect you much from the effect of blue light, if there's any at all. They just don't absorb the wavelengths of light at the right wavelengths. Um, most sunscreens are in the UVB range, at least the ones in the United States. And then UVA ones, uh, much more limited, but... Uh, 
of those, it does look like zinc oxide could provide some protection in that range of that uh, 380 to 400 nanometer range because uh, zinc oxide is still uh, effective in that range, although it drops off quite rapidly after that. And maybe even titanium dioxide can protect from it too. Other ingredients that can absorb uh, the blue light range are melanin, at least a synthetic version of the pigment found in skin. Some of the iron oxides uh, absorb in this range and uh, carotenoids, uh, which are plant-based pigments, uh, they can do that too. But mostly, I, I don't think this is a problem to worry about. The amount of blue light that you're getting from the sun is far greater than anything you're getting from your electronics. So you don't have to worry about your iPhone making your skin get wrinkly. To me, this is really a new marketing angle that follows a very familiar pattern. First, scientists discover some interesting aspect of nature, and then marketers see an opportunity to talk about this as some sort of problem, and then they sell you products that are gonna solve that problem. We got a question from a loyal listener with mature skin, and they had a few questions. Uh, but one was, how do I get a good color match for a foundation via the internet? She had also asked a second question about shopping for a foundation for mature skin. Is there an URL for that? You just type it in Google, like a Google search? <laughs> no. Huh. Um, so typically how most people shop for foundation in general, whether it's online or in the store, they start by first identifying what type of coverage they want. So am I looking for something that's full coverage with my skin throwing, showing through just to help buffer the redness a little, or maybe some imperfections, or some people love a full coverage foundation that literally creates a completely new complexion for them, or maybe someone wants in between. And then you start by identifying what your skin undertones are. So am I a cool skinned person, a neutral skin person, a warm skin person, and you go to the lightness and darkness level within your skin tone range. Wait, how do you, and, how, do you, how, do, how do you learn all this stuff? Is there some sort of, uh, is there some sort of book you get assigned when you're a woman and you learn all these things? Yes. Yeah. Girl code. No, I'm just <laughs> kidding. Uh, typically, if you have a a yellow or golden tone or greenish tone to your skin, you would be considered warm, olive complected. If you have a rosy pink tint to your skin, and if you look at your veins and they're more blue, you would be considered to have a cooler skin tone. Hmm. And then if you're not really either, you're neutral. So that's that's how I learned how to do it. Oh. Um, you also, if you tend, if you're not sure by looking at your skin or your veins, if you feel like you look better in cooler tones, you would be cool complected. If you look better in greens, yellows, browns, you you could be considered warm tones. So there there's a couple different routes, but essentially you head over to the lightness or darkness that best matches the lightness or darkness of your skin, and you start identifying, okay, I'm cool toned. Let me pick a cool toned foundation to go with my skin. And if you're ever in doubt about what shade you are, typically mm -hmm. you may go for the lighter shade, unless you're really interested in having that, that chin and jaw line that girls at my high school used to have <laughs> uh, when their foundation was too dark. Ah. Uh, yeah, it's and it's easier to to help 
add dimension to your skin if your foundation is a little lighter because you can, you know, add bronzer and blush. But if it's too dark, you know, that doesn't usually look good and it's harder to add on top of that. It's very easy to do in store. And I guess you could do this online just the same. Uh, but the difference is in online, you can start by identifying how light or dark you are and then choose your, your undertone, cool, neutral, warm. But then you have to order it and wait for it to come. Whereas when you're in person in a store, you're able to try it on. And even then, it's a bit of a risk because the lighting in the store can have a certain warm or cool cast to it, which can impact the way the foundation looks on your skin. Wow. Sometimes I've purchased foundations in stores and selected something suitable in store. But when I step out into the sun, it just does not work for my skin tone at all. So it's a bit of a risk there. But essentially, if you can know in general how light or dark your skin is and whether you're, you have a cool, neutral or warm undertone, you should be okay. I know a lot of websites now show examples of skin tones with that foundation on it. So hopefully that can assist. Uh, but really, it's best to go into the store and get assistance. If you go to Sephora, they have a color match program where they use a colorimeter, essentially, which is a device that's used to objectively measure color in the form of numbers. And they measure your skin on many parts of your face. And they come up with all of the foundations in their inventory by different brands that match your exact skin tone because no brand is the same. Right. If I'm a, a golden honey in one brand, which I'm not, that's like 50 shades too dark for me, as we previously covered in the tanning bit, um, I won't be a golden honey in another brand. So using the cutesy names are, are difficult as well, but this uh, skin tone measurement device will take all of that out and just say, if you're a golden honey in this brand, you're a warm beige in this brand. Alternatively, you can ignore the cute names and just use the cues of golden and honey to indicate warm. And usually most brands are pretty good at using terms like neutral or cool or fair or all that kind of stuff. It still sounds like something that uh, isn't going to work great on the internet. And it's going to work much better if you just go into the store. I think so. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really hard to do it online. It's something you got to do in person. Well, but co with... color matching is just a difficult thing anyway. It's it's a surpri it still surprises me that companies can make batch to batch colors the same. It's just really hard doing that matching because it depends so much on getting the pigments broken up and mixed up properly and with all the same energies. It's just a, it's really much harder than people know. Oh, yeah. And, you know, if you have a formula for a foundation as a manufacturer and you make it one time with lot numbers of pigments, making it the second time doesn't mean it's the same. There's always slight variation to pigments when you get them in and dyes. And you typically have to adjust every batch that you do to make sure that you get it close to the standard that was approved for the shade. And it can take a lot of work. And when you are a brand developing a concealer or a foundation with another manufacturer, you actually have to specify the level of color batching you're interested in. I don't know if you knew this, Perry. So mm. when you're manufacturing um, foundation and you say, uh, well, obviously it needs to be color matched. That's not something you have to specify. The manufacturer is just going to do that anyway, but you have to specify the level of color matching you need because the reality is 
95% of people. And I feel like I just made that number up, but I also feel like I'm not making that number up. Cannot discern extremely subtle nuances between shades. So for the most part, you can color match it pretty close and most people won't notice a difference. But then there's this thing called prestige color matching, Mm -hmm. which I've had a few manufacturers use with me. And that's where, no, like I'm really picky and it needs to be like dead on. And it changes the pricing structure of the product because for them to color match it to that specificity is a lot of work. And you have to have someone with a really good color eye doing it and the good news is most people don't notice yeah yeah most people do not all right i think we have time for one more question question for the beauty brains does using a daily moisturizer uh, cause your body to adapt to that and therefore reduce the body's natural hydration properties does skin Adapt to the use of moisturizers. Have you ever heard of this before, Valerie? I've heard it a lot. And the other way I've heard it as well many times is, oh, my hair got used to my shampoo. Right. So this notion that your body just gets used to whatever product you're using. Now, some people are going to claim that moisturizers are going to make the skin lazy. I saw a dermatologist say this, like, using a moisturizer makes your skin lazy. It's like a comic strip. It's- right. <laughs> Right, and then it's so... I'm just lazy. I don't know if my skin is. (laughs) Well, so I guess the idea is uh, you use a moisturizer, that makes your skin cells like lazy, like, yeah, there's already moisturizer there, I don't need to make any more. And then so the skin cells become less able to hydrate themselves, and that makes you want to use more moisturizer, and so then you get into this vicious cycle uh, where it using moisturizer makes your skin drier. Um, Well, the only problem is... That just doesn't happen. That's not how our skin works. That's not how physiology works. The skin gets dry for a variety of reasons. Mostly it's because of the atmosphere that you're in or the environment, uh, maybe from UV damage or just your skin is getting older and uh, it has a different level of moisturization. So when you put a moisturizer on your skin, all that does is help the outer layers of your skin retain more moisture. It doesn't tell the skin's cells below in the dermis to stop producing new cells or stop, you know, creating the natural moisturizing factor. So while it it can make logical sense that maybe putting moisture on moisturizer on might have some interfering effect, there's no scientific evidence that it does. So it doesn't. Uh, feel free to use your moisturizer. Um, you're not going to be physiologically addicted to it, um, and your skin's not going to get used to it. Now, how do you think that works with lip balms? I've heard a lot of people say, ah, the more I use lip balm, the more I have to use it, and I get into this crazy rhythm. Yeah, it's it's the same thing. And the the big difference with lip balm is that you know you're you're always touching your lips you're just more much more sensitive sensitive to what's going on on your lips 
you're licking your lips more and you get more you can't you don't get physiologically addicted to lip balm you can get psychologically addicted addicted like sort of like a bad habit like chewing your nails or something like that it's just that you put the lip balm on your skin you like how that feels and then when the, now it feels good right and then when the lip balm sort of wears away you don't like how that feels as much so then you put more on and you do get into that that cycle but, but it's I, not physiological, it's psychological. Exactly. So you you can't you cannot really get addicted to lip balm, although you can psychologically get addicted. And the thing with hair, when people are using hair products and they say, Oh, I, you have to change your conditioner or excuse me, shampoo routine every so often because your hair gets used to it. It's sort of the same thing. You get used to how your hair feels using a shampoo. And then when you change the shampoo, your hair feels different because the formula is different. It's adding slightly different attributes to the hair. So it's not that you had to switch it up because it got used to it. It's you're just feeling something different. Right. Bottom line is you don't physiologically get addicted to your skin products or hair products. Hey, Valerie, you know what that music is? I think that's time for us to sign off. It is. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening. Yeah, if you get a chance, head over to iTunes and leave us a review over there. We always like to see the uh, the good reviews there. And uh, always, always appreciate any sort of comments uh, or suggestions you have for the show. That also helps other people find the show, and it helps ensure that we have a full docket of beauty questions to answer. We're getting through some of them, but uh, more just keep coming. And thank you, everybody who sent in a question. We, we get to them as soon as we can. If you want to send in a question, just record it on your phone and then email it to thebeautybrains at gmail.com, and you might make it onto the show. You could also ask us a question on one of our various social media accounts. On Instagram, we're at TheBeautyBrains2018. On Twitter, we're at TheBeautyBrains. And we have a Facebook page. The Beauty Brains are on Patreon. If you want to support the show, Patreon is the best way to do that. That will help keep the show ad-free and prevent me from having to go back to corporate America and work for one of those big beauty brand companies making the big bucks. It's, you know, it's really hard for scientists to give straight answers like we do when they rely on a big beauty brand to pay their salary. So I'd also like to thank our top patrons. We, you know, Valerie, we have a number of patrons there, but some of our top ones are Melazan, Lauren, Kimberly, Emily, Mora, and Magdalena. Thank you so much for supporting the show and keeping us going. So if you like what we do and want to see us keep doing it, go to patreon.com slash thebeautybrains and subscribe. Thanks again for listening. And remember, be brainy about your beauty. Thanks hey, Perry, what do you call someone if their spouse is from the Czech Republic? I do not know. Their checkmate. <laughs> Kittens! <laughs>